Gresham College presents Magna Carta, the medieval context and the part played by William Marshall, by Lord Igor Judge. Uh, Lord Mayor, Sheriffs, Aldermen, Provost, ladies and gentlemen, I have never ever commented on any case in which I have sat as a judge, but I am about to break that rule now. When Tony Arledge relied on Magna Carta 1215 in support of his case that there was an abusive process in the prosecution of a police officer, he was wrong. <laughs> and there's no further appeal. <laughs> I think just before we get to Magna Carta, it is worth us spending 30 seconds just paying tribute to the memory of Thomas Gresham, in whose memory these lectures are taking place. Thomas Gresham understood finance. He understood economics. He understood what the consequences of bringing lots and lots of gold from the new South American colonies of Spain would do to the value of the pound in your pocket. We could do with his assistance to this very day. <laughs> but 800 years ago this month, indeed almost 800 years ago to this very day, 14th of January, what we nowadays would describe as peace talks collapsed. The talks were organized and planned and took place at the temple, then called the New Temple, then the home of the Knights Templar, one of the most influential and powerful orders in Christendom, now, of course, the home of barristers, middle and inner temple. It was then, what it, some of you may not think it is now, a place of holy sanctuary. Some ten minutes' ride on horseback from where we stand, I stand, you sit today, 200 years or so before this ancient guild hall was built, just gives us some sense of the distance in time we're talking about. And assembled there in the temple was the anointed king, significant that he was the anointed king, John, and his rebellious barons who had already formed a conjuratio, or sworn association, to stick together to seek relief for their grievances against the king. And there was a further group of barons, loyal perhaps not so much loyal to the king in his personal capacity, but honoring their obligation of fealty, fidelity, and the oaths they had taken to abide by them. And then there was Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, accompanied by heavyweight members of the church. This was the epiphany meeting. It was supposed to have a deal done. The barons had their terms ready. The king thought their terms were outrageous and expressed himself in no uncertain terms. But more to the point, in the political world that inhabited 1215, and political worlds do not change as the years go by, more to the point he found himself a ready-made excuse for bringing the discussions to an end. Nothing, of course, whatever to do with the terms. The rebel barons had come to the temple carrying weapons, carrying arms. They had not shown, these are his words, 
proper respect. Why does that remind me of the excuse of the yobbo all down the ages? The excuse for so many fights in the streets, and indeed, sadly, the excuse for so many deaths and violent incidents that occur in them. The other side was not showing proper respect. But the church got what it wanted from that meeting, a second charter guaranteeing its independence, which in effect repeated the charter granted in the temple a couple of months earlier in November 1214. Those charters became Clause 1 of Magna Carta. Although the rebel barons hadn't been in any way bothered about the status or the consideration for the church, Stephen Langton found his way in. He got his charter, although the barons did not get theirs. And so, ladies and gentlemen, quite apart from the prospect of the horrors of an imminent civil war, a very distinctive feature of the times in which our predecessors lived is difficult for us to grasp. We are a secular society. We live in a secular age. Of course people have their faiths, not denying that or doubting it. But not a lot of you here today, and I'm including myself among us, spend a great deal of time worrying about where our immortal souls will go. Some do, but many do not. They, in 1215, were troubled. And again, to put it in context, in 1215, it was not that long since Thomas Becket had been murdered on the steps of the altar of Canterbury Cathedral by the king's men. Let's not discuss whether Henry II was complicit in his murder. Only ten years before... King John had refused to accept Langton, the papal nominee, as the archbishop. England was placed under interdict. We have to understand what that meant. No communion, no confession and absolution, no marriage. And in January 1209, John was excommunicated. When neither the interdict nor his personal communication served to change his conduct, by January 1213, the Pope Innocent III pronounced sentence of deposition on him. And again, using a phrase with which we, in our world, have become sadly familiar, the Pope had authorized the King of France, Philip Augustus, to wage holy war against John. John was rather more bothered by the impact of the papal order on the exercise of his power on earth than he had been by the potential consequences to his immortal soul. And so, in May 1213, he submitted to the Pope. Again, let us just pause to think what that meant. John accepted that the Pope was not only his spiritual lord, but and politically speaking, more important, his feudal lord. The kingdom was surrendered to the Pope, and John became his vassal. The Eurosceptics of the day would have rent their garments. And when later the Pope directed the rebel barons that they were, after all, to pay their taxes to the king, well, when their assent had not been sought 
uh, or given, uh, the skeptics would no doubt have donned sackcloth and ashes. We were being run by Europe. Oh my goodness, that'll make a headline. (laughs) Now the Pope, Innocent III. Very interesting character. Never knowingly undersold himself. He generously allowed that he was lower, I suspect in his own mind it was only just a little bit, but lower in status than God. Now that's a very generous kind of way of dealing with things. But he asserted and sought to enforce the assertion that he was above all men, including reigning monarchs. As for Philip Augustus of France, he would have been only too pleased to rub John's nose yet further in the mud following the great French victory over John's allies in France at the Battle of Bouvines, 1214 July. That's the moment when one of the great Professors of Magna Carta, the late Sir James Holt, said that Runnymede became inevitable. John was bust, using colloquial, if I may say so, to Miss Flanders' uneconomic language. There was no money in the kitty. Now, for the French, the prize in sight was the throne of England for Philip's son, Louis. And there's a rarely remembered, I suspect none of us were taught it in schools when every time the English went into battle, there were victories that we won. We all heard about Cressy, Poitiers, Agincourt, but none of us ever heard of the defeats. You know, we did lose the Hundred Years' War after a hundred years, but so this is a bit of the story we've never been told. Civil war on its way, the rebel barons, who some put in the category of heroes of Magna Carta, offered the throne of England to Louis of France. Bring your troops here, bring your troops here to a foreign king. Assist us in the civil war. The deal is that you'll become the king. They were traitors. And so, my Lord Mayor, you've heard me say this before, but I've got to say it in public now. So, standing here in the Guildhall, I have to say, was the city of London. Desperate for support, in May 1215, John gave the city its charter, free, for nothing, and its own Lord Mayor. It had been wanting this for some years, and every time it asked for it, no, 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 you have to pay. That was the way it was done in those days. So the charter was given to the city as a bribe. Again, in modern terms, appeasement. Well... The king hoped that the city's gratitude for the charter would bring them in on his side, and it failed because the city, as the city always does, saw the reality. The king's position was becoming weaker. When French soldiers, no fewer than 7,000 of them, landed in England in support of the rebel barons, they were quite unopposed and greeted warmly by the rebel barons and the city of London later opened its gates to them. We are still in contact with the consequences of the the Great Charter of the City of London to the City of London. It's exemplified each year as the new Lord Mayor of London in the parade with which so many of you will be familiar, comes 
to the Royal Courts of Justice to be presented to the Lord Chief Justice and take the oaths of the ancient office which he, sometimes she, will now occupy. The loyalty of the Lord Mayor can now be taken for granted. We can thank King John for something, can't we? But that's the context. This is a civil war about to break out. There are armed men wandering round the country, setting out to besiege castles and the like. And in June, they assemble on a field at Running Mead, or Runny Mead, by the Thames, all armed, all ready to fight. The rebel barons have their articles. We've still got the document. This is the deal we want. All written out. The discussions begin on the 15th of June. The deal is done by the 19th of June. Why we celebrate the 15th of June? Because that's the date at the top. What people have overlooked is that you wrote the date at the top of the document. But they didn't finish till the 19th. Then they all did a lot of hanging around, handshaking. You've seen it when big political meetings take place. You know, all our leaders meet, they shake hands, they smile, they all come out saying they've done a really good deal when they haven't. And what's more, in medieval times, they then all took oaths. You know, we promise that we're going to keep to the terms of this treaty. Well, one person who had no intention of doing so was King John himself. So by taking the oath that he did, his soul was once again in great peril. And then the copies of the charter are made and distributed round the country. And we have four of them left. The one in Lincoln actually has got the name Lincolnia written on the back, taken back to Lincoln uh, by the Bishop of Lincoln who was there at Runnymede. Contrary to popular belief, the king never signed the charter. He sealed it. Well, actually, that's not true. It was sealed with his seal. It was not called Magna Carta. It was not called Great Charter. It was just one more charter in an age in which charters were produced like confettis at a wedding. As a legal document, it was totally unenforceable. There's no question, easy judgment this one, the king signed, sorry, the king agreed under duress. So he had no intention of abiding by it. It would not have been legally enforceable on the duress point. And then most important of all, the king, at the Pope rather, in his capacity as the king's feudal lord, stepped in. England is my fiefdom. You've all entered into a deal without anybody asking me what I think about it. And he immediately annulled it. The moment he heard of the charter, he annulled it. I'm quoting his words, utterly repudiated. And even the king was forbidden by the Pope, listen to the language, to presume to observe it. That's not the language of a modest man, is it? But it had been sealed. It had gone round the country. It had been proclaimed. Now, we're all familiar, I think we're all familiar, I hope we are, with the justice provisions. And they're very important, and they still apply to this day. The denial of justice, the delay, 
of justice, the delay being the denial, the entitlement to trial according to the law of the land, yes. But in the medieval context, perhaps the significant moment in the document is Clause 61. This is an extraordinary clause by which the anointed king, answerable on his death to God for the way in which he had abided by the oath he took at his coronation, and they all did, and they all said they'd rule justly and fairly, well, when you get to God, he may say you've done a really bad job and you'll go to hellfire, but it's not much use to the subjects who you've oppressed on earth. What Clause 61 acknowledged was that if the king failed to abide by the terms of the charter, and paraphrasing, after notice was given to him of his failure by a group of 25 barons, any non-compliance thereafter, in effect, absolved them from their oaths of fealty. And they were entitled then to make war on him. That was an extraordinary clause, the security clause, it's called. On the continent, John was derided for having become subject to over kings. But it was from that clause that the principle identified or spoken of by the Lord Mayor a few minutes ago and described by Mr. Justice Bracton, acknowledging that the king was above all individuals but subject to the law, was derived. And that phrase was written in about 1240-1250. So yes, the king is answerable to God, of course, but everybody in the medieval world accepted that the starting point. But crucially for the development of all our constitutional principles, subject to the law, no longer his whim, no longer was he himself the law. And this provided the core principle on which lawyers and parliamentarians challenged the Stuart claim to rule by divine right. The other crucial clause, no time to go through it in detail, is clause 12 coupled with clause 14. No aid, that's tax. No scootage, that's another form of tax to do with carrying shields, which I can come to if you ask me to. But it would take too long. Without the agreement of the council and provision for calling the council to see whether the council would agree. I'll come to why that's significant in a moment. Now, can we just remember, 800 years on, that we're talking about people? You know, they were like us. They had the characteristics, strengths, weaknesses. They had their own agendas, of course. We've seen how, although the barons didn't raise the issue of the church's position, the church got the first clause in. Of course they did. They were like us. And each of them was uh, reacting to an unfolding situation as it happened. Not all the barons who were rebels were committed as equally as each other. On the other hand, Llewellyn of Wales must have felt very committed indeed to the rebellion. He had seen, or heard of, he hadn't seen, he'd heard of 14 Welsh boys 
being hanged by John, with John going all the way to Nottingham to see them being hanged because some of their fathers had rebelled against him. And William Marshall himself, that most loyal of the loyal, to whom I'm going to come now, had been declared a traitor by John in 1205 and effectively banished from the court. As John's situation became increasingly hazardous, John asked him to come back, summoned him, of course. What I'm driving at is there's no set pattern to these things. If there's a hero of this event, it's not the rebel barons, it's William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke. John regarded Marshall as his key envoy in the discussions and negotiations. Importantly, he was seen as the only civilian as opposed to clerical guarantor of John's good faith. And that was because he had an absolutely unrivaled reputation for fidelity to his word. He was so close to the centre of discussions that some historians in the last, earlier part of the last century suggested that he'd helped to draft it. As Marshall was illiterate, it seems unlikely. But it is interesting that in relation to the first charter, he is the first of the people identified in it who is not himself a cleric, the first of the illustrious magnates from the baronial class. And then the charter was annulled, civil war broke out, Marshall, acknowledged to be one of the foremost battlers, campaigners, strategists of his age, supported the king. But the French were now in England, the French were now in London. The outcome was uncertain, and we are very close, we were very close, to the end of the Plantagenet dynasty. And the French king, that would have changed our history. But as I remind myself, and you all know, history is determined by what a recent prime minister described as events. Now, 800 years later, it would be churlish to trumpet with joy the death of anyone. But it was a very convenient event that Innocent III died in 1216, succeeded by a pope of a def very different hue. And then in October 1216, John himself died. Two deaths, a happy event, but not immediately or obviously so. John's heir was a boy, nine years old. Now, the death of a medieval king without an heir old enough to succeed him would be likely to be catastrophic for the line. We all know what happened to the princes in the tower. We all know what happened to a much earlier prince in the tower, John's nephew, Arthur, who was murdered almost certainly on John's orders because on the basis of primogenitor, he had a better claim to the throne than John himself. So John's heir is a boy, nine years old, Henry III. Marshall, the moment he heard of John's death, was at Gloucester. He summoned the loyal barons to Gloucester and brought the boy king there to be anointed, crowned. Gloucester Abbey notice, because Westminster Abbey itself was under the control of French troops. When did they teach you that in the history you learned? <laughs> we're always told the last time we were invaded was 1066. 
It isn't true, ladies and gentlemen. It just isn't true. Within days, Marshall was appointed by the other barons uh, with the support of the papal legate as regent, rector nostra at regni nostri, a new title, new office, regent protector, rule of the country. I'm going to quote uh, Dan Jones, whose recent vivid book, The Plantagenets, The Kings Who Made England, underlines it. All those in the Abbey's vast crowd must have realized that this was a dreadful way to start a reign. It was not just to the solemn nine-year-old Henry's advantage that Marshall's attitude prevailed among a few good men in England. The future of the dynasty depended on it. Marshall's first step was to resuscitate John's 1215 charter, notwithstanding John's repudiation of it and the Pope papal annulment of it. In late 1216, he issued it with his personal seal together with that of the papal legate, not in identical terms to the 1215 charter, with a number of revisions. Purpose, let's try and find a reconciliation with the rebel barons. In its final clause, it offers the possibility of a resolution of outstanding issues when fuller counsel would be possible to achieve what was best for the common good. Well, as an attempt to make a peace, it failed. It was issued from a position of lamentable military weakness. And so it was rejected by the barons and indeed probably Louis of France, and so the civil war continued. Move on a year, 1217, and incidentally we now have two charters. We always think of one, but now move on to 1217. For some reason, it doesn't matter, the French troops were divided. A large body went up to Lincoln to take part in a siege there at Lincoln Castle, the castle being held by a loyal female baron, a remarkable woman in her own right. Marshall is no longer young. He's 70. He's reached that lovely age when judges in our country are obliged to retire. <laughs> what did he do? Action man went straight up to Lincoln, and there were no motorways and no trains and no aeroplanes to do it, and there set about raising the siege. A strategic opportunity occurred, and when he saw it, the old warrior charged into battle forgot his helmet. You can imagine the squire saying to him, um, to this great man, and he was physically a very big specimen too, um, you've forgotten your helmet. Oh, damn it. So the helmet's put on just as well. When the battle was over, it was very heavily dented in a number of places. So, hand-to-hand -hand fighting, the battle ends with a great victory for Marshall. 46 of the rebel barons and their associates captured. The French invasion continued for a while. Louis defeated shortly afterwards in a sea battle off Sandwich. Then peace negotiations followed. Marshall, working with the papal legate, accepted. Notice accepted in victory that the liberties demanded by the rebel barons should be restored. And in November 17, 1217, the third charter was reissued, or issued a reissue, 
again without being quite the same language as the two previous charters, but understood to be part of the same sequence. Difference this time. The charter sealed by Marshall did not reflect the military pressure which forced John to seal the 1215 charter, nor the military weakness of the royal situation which led Marshall to issue and seal the 1216 charter, but now issued in the full amplitude of victory in battle. In short, notwithstanding the defeat of the rebel barons, the charter was issued. It was not in modern language a truth and reconciliation process, but it showed a magnanimity and statesmanship which brought an end to foreign invasion, civil war, and established this boy king on the throne of his father. That magnanimity was not recognized by the boy. Maybe Marshall thought, well, Marshall wasn't around now. He died in 1219. After his death, Marshall was criticized for the generosity of the peace terms that he had achieved with the rebel barons and the peace that he had achieved in England. And perhaps that is one reason why his name has been obliterated from public memory. Henry III learned a bitter lesson much later. I'll summarize it in three words, Simon de Montfort. Marshall was given a state funeral. Stephen Langton described him as the greatest knight that ever lived. By 1225, when the king was old enough to assume power, the charter was reissued under his own seal. The deal was very simple. Unless you give us our charter, you cannot have the taxes you are seeking. This is not an occasion and there is no time to address how no taxation without representation became the foundation for our own parliamentary system and eventually the battle cry of the colonists in the future United States of America. But the, even the eventual development of Parliament can be seen. I don't say it's attributed to Marshall, that the concepts wouldn't have occurred to him. He was a medieval man. But we can see that the processes used by Marshall when he was regent can be described and have been described by a modern historian as proto-parliamentary. Now, I make no bones about it. I firmly believe that without William Marshall, what we now call Magna Carta, the four documents, would have been not much more than a medieval document commanding very little attention from any but the most distinguished specialist historians. How many of you remember the laws of Henry I? or the laws of King Stephen. Oh, full of good intentions, justice, loyalty. I mean, it's all there, but they didn't matter. They don't matter. These documents do matter. And one of the reasons they matter is that William Marshall was there to ensure the issue and the reissue and the reissue. If you want to pay your respects to William Marshall and his achievement, you can visit the Temple Church, the Mother Church of the Common Law, he joined the Knights Templar a few days before his death. One of the treasurers of our church, 
I speak as a member of Middle Temple, is his monumental effigy. But more important, it is perhaps time, is it not, for his contribution to the events which we are celebrating to be recognized. He, not the rebel barons, is the hero of this event. His contribution has been too, overlong, too long overlooked. And ladies and gentlemen, I think it's time that we understand what he did for us. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.